One, there we go. I'm glad that uh, song was snuck in there. Kind of reflects how I feel today because I don't feel it. If it's okay to say that once in a while, you don't always wake up like on a mountaintop. And so I like that song because it's honest and honesty is a good thing. I think. Don't you think honesty should be like a high value in Christian culture? I would say that God would put a high value on honesty and truth and the uh, scripture where we're uh, going to be today is Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to pick up where we were last week and beginning to uh, talk about the idea of persevering in hope. And uh, the Bible in Hebrews 6, beginning, we're going to back up a little and pick up verse 11 and uh, go through the end of chapter 6. And there the Bible says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assur- assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiply, and I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it's our uh, resource, as you've revealed truth to us, to know your mind and heart and to be able to think about your ways and to... to uh, have our life become shaped and aligned with your purposes and obedience. And so we pray that you will speak to us by the scripture, by your spirit, as we gather now and as we attend to this. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. We, we um, are in an aside here in the uh, scripture that started at chapter 5, verse 12, and uh, goes through the end of this chapter because the writer had said, you know, wanted to talk to you about Melchizedek, and he said, but you become slow or, or dull of hearing. And so he takes some time, and he talks about the importance of maturity. Even last week, we talked about the temptation that some people would face to say, you know what, I'm finished with this whole Christian idea. You know, well, I'm, it's not what I believe anymore. And he talked about the danger of departure of just saying, you know, I wash my hands of this and I'm going to live life in a different uh, fashion now. So this has been a kind of a detour, a needed one, to help us think about some ways that uh, we, you know, we might become lazier, the words that he he used. And we said laziness is not, um, it doesn't reflect the fact that in your uh, vocational life you might work really hard. But here we're talking about, Uh, discipline and internalizing spiritual realities as an aspect of who we are in Christ. And so a person could work really hard and still be spiritually lazy. And and he says, I want to warn you against the danger of becoming dull of hearing. And so the passage today helps us to think about the fact 
that we can't always see the whole story based on a single snapshot. It, okay, he uses Abraham as an illustration. Abraham had a long life. He, his life was committed to the reality that God had called him. You remember that Abraham was living, uh, you know, far, far away from the, prom, the land of promise, and God called him to follow him and to be his friend. He's called the friend of God in the Bible. And God made a promise to him that he said, through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. He says, even though you don't have any children, I'm going to multiply your descendants so that they'll be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. Or if you look up in the heavens at night and try to count the stars, you couldn't count count them because your descendants will be so numerous and so if you took a single snapshot of Abraham's life, there are points along the way where it looks as if the fact that he's, he and his wife have no children meant the end of God's promise until way, way far into the end of his life. So he, he lives with this expectation, this calling that for the majority of his life was unfulfilled. Did Abraham sometimes try to take that into his own hands? With not so good uh, outcomes, yeah, of course he did. He tried to say, Look, "How can we make this happen?" You know, God's made this promise to me that hasn't happened. But if you looked at his life at some junctures, you would say, "This doesn't look like faithfulness from God. This doesn't look like that God is keeping His word here or His promise to him." We can probably identify with that feeling at times of, of saying, you know, I don't feel very hopeful. I don't feel like my life is panning out in exactly the way I expected it to as someone who has been made promises by God, who said to me, look, this is like we talked about in Sunday school, you're now living eternal life. And we're like, yeah, really, this is what it feels like some days? Again, if we're honest. And, and what we know is that our feelings are unreliable guides. Our feelings are unreliable guides, nor are our current experiences the final word. That's what Abraham discovered. His current experience wasn't the final word. What God said was ironclad. What God said was completely dependable and trustworthy. But I think what we see in this passage is how it challenges us and shows us how to persevere in hope, even if we backed up and we said, you know what, this current if, I, if my life were only defined by a picture that could be taken of this moment, it doesn't feel especially hopeful or like an accurate way of understanding that everything's going to be okay. So how, how do we persevere in hope? Well, we see in the uh, life of Abraham how it's illustrated in verses uh, 12 through 15. He, we see that he received the promises of God. He inherited them through faith and patience. And I think it's important to get, get some definitions here. What do we mean when we talk about faith? Of course, it's a common word. It's how we describe our entire life. We're people of faith. But in the Bible, like we've seen before, faith is different than intellectual sin. It's different than knowing a set of beliefs or ideas. It's commitment. Faith is commitment. It is like standing, like it says in Ephesians chapter 6, having done everything to stand. We just continue to stand and walk it out. It's commitment. Commitment's not just knowing Sunday school facts. It, 
it is a way of being, and it's having our whole life framed by God's word and the meaning that he assigns and who, who he is and what he intends. So when we think about what faith is in a way, you know, I thought about it first as a life preserver. That's what it was for me. I was, you know how the old hymn says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. That was me. And God threw me a life preserver. I was over my head, sinking, hopeless, and I got hope. That's what faith felt like to me at first. It's like it snatched me out of peril. And like the psalm writer says in Psalm 40, he says he pulled me up out of the miry clay and he set me on solid ground and he put a new song in my heart. And he says, many will see it in fear. That's what faith was for me at first. It felt like rescue. It felt like being thrown a life preserver. But more than that, in the Bible, faith is a compass too. Because you remember how Jesus says, I am the way? Thomas, he, Thomas says, we don't know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. In other words, it's, the idea is like, if you don't know where you're going, he doesn't just give you instructions. I don't know how you guys are, but like, I'm, uh, my learning process is like, uh, where, after three instructions, my brain stops working. So if you said, go down here to end market, take a right. When you get to Port Wentworth, take a left. And I'm like, okay, I'm lost now. I don't, you know, that's not how my brain works. So Jesus says, here's what I'll do. I'll get in the car with you. I'll go with you. I am the way. I'm, the, I'm your compass. I'm your GPS. I'm going with you. You're not stranded. You're not alone. So it was helpful for me to know, not only did I get snatched out of peril, not only did I get my feet set on solid ground, but I got someone to go with me through my whole life. He says, I am the way. And faith is... It saves us and directs us with these rescued lives. I get the impression that sometimes people are amazed to be rescued, but they don't know what to do next. Like, I'm so glad I was rescued, but now what? What do I do with the rest of this life? They're snatched out of the sea. I like the movie Castaway. I think I've used a Castaway illustration before, but Tom Hanks, who works for FedEx and... Uh, if you're not familiar, he works for FedEx. He's on his way over to uh, overseas, and his plane crashes. And he is the only survivor of a very small group of people who are on a plane. He's stranded on an island in Fiji. And he ends up being there for years and years, and he learns how to survive. And finally, he makes a boat and is rescued. He gets out over these huge waves into the sea, and uh, a ship finds him and rescues him but now he's back in civilization and they're throwing a party for him and really the end of the movie is kind of a question mark like okay I've been rescued but now what what I do with the rest of my life and I think sometimes that's how people feel we we uh, have been rescued but what do we do with this resurrected life that we've been giving given and faith points us to God's purposes that are revealed in his word. It's a direction. That's what I see in the life of Abraham. That it, He wasn't doing this perfectly, but it was a direction. It was a calling. And he continued to go on, go on with God. And it talks about faith and patience. With faith and patience, you know, inherit the promise. So patience is endurance. 
It's the willingness to stick with God's call even when our circumstances are difficult, which is pretty often. That's what I would say. It's not all smooth sailing. The reality is that life often is difficult, often is challenging. And so we need endurance. It's spiritual determination is another way that we might define it. You remember the spiritual song that uh, came out of Asian fellowships? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow, they sang. Even if nobody else does this, this is that's spiritual determination. Though none go with me, still I will follow. That's what the Bible means, I think, when it talks about patience and perseverance. It's the attitude that Joshua had when he said, um, you know, whether you worship the gods on the other side of the river, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's like, this is where the line has been drawn for me. And that's the life of Abraham in a nutshell. God's promise was his warrant and his guarantee. God had promised him something, and he stuck with it. And so he received these promises on the strength of God's oath. And this is interesting. God swore by himself, because who else was God going to swear by? Was he going to say, by the powers, I promise. No, there was nobody else for God to swear by in the whole universe. And God swore by himself, it says. And there are two different places that we see that. And we'll talk about that. But God swore by himself a promise to Abraham that in you I'm going to bless the whole world eventually. It was a promise that was in embryonic form. But the promise was as strong as God himself. That's the point that the writer's making in Hebrews. That He's like, he persevered in hope because this promise was founded on the personality of God who God himself was. His promise of uh, descendants was based on who God was. Promises people make can be shaky. You know, in fact, the more adamant people are in swearing, the less I believe them typically. But that God's promises, based on his personality and his character... And he always keeps his promises. The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. So whatever God tells us in his word, we know that we can stick with it. So faith and patience, he says, but through faith and patience we inherit the the promises and, and God keeps his word. And God blessed the world through the promise of his blessing. He blessed Abraham and he promises him this blessing of Descendants, and we see that Abraham in the scripture persevered. It wasn't always linear and neat, and it wasn't always perfect or pretty. That's helpful for me, okay? I don't know how it helps you, but it helps me to know that his life of faith wasn't linear, wasn't perfect, what didn't always add up to something that you, in a single moment you could go, this looks like faithfulness. No, he struggled, and and struggling, I think, is part of what it means to be human. In fact, his wife, at one point, you remember what she she laughed about, this promise that geriatrics were going to have a baby. Who wouldn't? It was absurd. It seemed absurd. was absurd. 
and yet they stuck with God. It's when we get to Hebrews chapter eleven. I'm always amazed at the kindness that God shows toward people in how He describes their faith journey. It encourages me that when God looks at people, we would say, "Wait, they lied. They laughed. It didn't look, you know, like." But no, God says, "No, these are." The people of faith. These are the people that persevered. And, and so we see that, that. That when they got this promise from God, Michael Card wrote a song called Laughter. Because that's what their baby ended up being named Isaac. And Isaac meant laughter. Because here are these elderly people with the little baby in the house now. And he says, a barren land and a barren wife made Abraham laugh at his wandering life. A cruel joke it seemed then to call him the father of nations. A heavenly prank, a celestial joke, because gray hairs and babies leave no room for hope. But hoping was something this hopeless old man learned to do. I always loved that lyric. Didn't seem like anything was happening along the lines of what God had promised. Hebrews eleven twelve describes it this way. It says, through one man and him as good as dead is the way it talks about Abraham when they finally had a baby. God's promise is just incubating and it's there and it's in process. And Abraham arrived. The problem with arriving is it may take our whole life to get there. It took him his whole life to get there. Philippians 1.6 says that the one who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. So we think, man, this makes no sense to me where I am right now. I felt that way way more than once. The Bible says the one who began a good work in you will faithfully complete it until the day of Christ. Arriving, though, may take your whole life. So we see in... This Abraham received God's promise. And then the scripture in 16 through 18 of chapter 6 says God's promise is underwritten by his faithful character. <coughs> Excuse me. So people swear an oath to something or someone greater than themselves. You go to court, you know, they swear you in, right? They're trying to get your word aligned with something greater than you. So people swear by an authority greater than themselves and and men swear by an authority and the appeal is intended to be the end of all disputing. That's what the scripture says when we we say, I swear by God or I swear according to the Bible, uh, we're looking at as an authority. We're saying this is the end of all dispute, my word, I'm putting my word on the line here. Both God's affirmation of the covenant to Abraham and the, this new priesthood that he's going to talk about, the order of Melchizedek are on uh, reinforced by an oath. The Lord swears and he will not lie. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4 That's where that's found. And then in Genesis 15 and other places God's promise to Abraham is reiterated that God says Uh, The Lord swears and won't change his mind that through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And of course, it's a promise of the Messiah. Not only is he going to make of Abraham 
a nation, he takes this man and through him uh, creates the Israelites. But through that nation, God is going to bring to us the promised Messiah to, to the world. But both of those promises are made with an oath. And, of course, when it's talking about Jesus and a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, it's why he's given us all this information is to reinforce for us that God did something that he had promised to do already in Psalm chapter 110, and he did it, and and he's just trying to show us evidence to to be resolved and to be confident in who God is and what God has spoken. And our comfort and assurance are based on two, it says in the Bible, immutable things. The word immutable means unchangeable things. And our comfort and our assurance are based on these unchangeable things. The one one thing is God's promise. When you read this passage, to me, it's a little hard to get a handle on. What does he mean? What are those two immutable things? The first one is the promise that God made. And the second one is the oath that he made. So it's his promise underscored with an oath. It's impossible for God to lie. He is constitutionally incapable of lying. I used to work with, you know, this one guy I can remember uh, that people would say he'd rather climb up in a tree uh, and tell a lie than to stand on the ground and tell the truth. So You probably have met people like that. You're like, this person is incapable of telling the truth. The Bible says God is incapable of telling a lie. Never, ever. He can be trusted. He put the full weight of our salvation. Uh, we can put the full weight of our salvation and life on the strength of God's word. And the scripture says he, he promised to show more or to show more abundantly the promise. That's why God swore to, to Abraham and why God swore in Psalm 110. You know, some words get popular traction in culture, double down when it started. I'm like, I hate that phrase so much, doubling down on that. But now that it's passe, I kind of like it better. And, it, and what God did is he said, I'm doubling down on my promise. I made this promise. I'm doubling down on this promise now. And what we really see through this is that God cares about us. Isn't that good news? That God cares about us. He says that, I, you know, I hate, I don't say, this Bible is so hard for me to read. My Bible that I usually preach from uh, as a Christmas present, Frankie gave, uh, you know, I twisted her arm until they're recovering it. It's in the mail on its way back to me now. So this one has tiny print and it's hard to read. But my other Bible is coming, praise God. But this one, uh, I just want to find the place that it it says, By two immutable things, this is in verse 18, which is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold hold of the hope set before us. It's just trying to give us God's purpose. Why is God God doing what he's doing? It says, so that we might have strong consolation, to show more abundantly to those who would inherit eternal life. To show more abundantly. In other words, God wants it to be extremely clear. God wants it to be something that we don't forget about day after day. That I've made this commitment to you. I made my promise to you. My promise came to you in Jesus, in the Messiah, ultimately. 
so that we might have strong consolation, comfort, encouragement. The, uh, I love Second Peter chapter three verse nine. It says that God uh, is not God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But it says more than that. God's not, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His purpose for every single one of us is that we would have comfort and consolation through the good news that God loved us and paid the, the debt of our sin through his son who was raised from the dead and who gives life. So the scripture shows, too, that God provides unshakable hope, verses 18 through 20. And uh, it gives us a description of hope, I think, is how the chapter ends and showing us that what is hope when we think about it in the Bible. Well, for one thing, it is strong consolation. That's how it's described. Hope is strong consolation so that we might have great encouragement to seize the hope, it says, that is set before us. It's also described as a refuge. We have this hope as a, a, a refuge or that we have fled to in verse 18. Uh, to, we have, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of that hope. So it's described as a refuge. One writer, F.F. F. Bruce, says we are refugees from this sinking world order. We're refugees. We fled to him for refuge. We think about, you know, we've not been on North American soil subject to invasion, but there are places where people have been subject to invasion, like the Ukraine, even now, where there are armies on their soil, and often those people have to take to the road, and they have to try to lead and leave where they are and find protection under some other sovereign nation and the idea of refuge is that we fled danger and we, when, when we got on the road and we fled what we found was the door was pushed wide open and God was there saying come in he's our refuge he, he's taken us in and he's provided for us comfort and the door has been opened to his shelter and protection He's the shelter in our war-torn lives. Cormac McCarthy is uh, probably my favorite fiction writer. He, he wrote a book called The Road, which is not a very cheery book at all. It's about post-apocalyptic America. And he pictures some catastrophic event, you know, that probably was like nuclear disaster. And a father and a son, who are hopeful characters in this book, are traversing that wasteland of ash and gray nothing of what's left in the world after a devastating event pictured like that. There are marauding cannibalistic gangs on the road and frequently they have to hide and frequently they're in peril and frequently they're starving and trying to scrounge for food that is no longer easy to come by and they'll have little windfalls here and there and probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole book is that they find a uh, fallout shelter that someone built. Uh, the father stumbles across, probably at the most at the moment in the story when they're the most vulnerable. They find a cache and it's buried underground, of course. And the father uh, discovers it, knocks a padlock off, and when he flips the the top open, inside are lamps, dried food, and canned goods, and it's basically like. They have, they found a haven. 
in the middle of abject despair all around. And it's interesting, the little boy in the story has no concept of the world other than this world. He's never seen a world with green trees. He's never seen a world where there were birds in the sky. You know, his version of life is this version. And so he goes down into this little bit of paradise, and the boy in the story has the impulse to pray and to give thanks. He doesn't know to whom. He has no idea who to give thanks to. But he knows that, like, this is an incredible moment that inspired something in him that was thanksgiving. Of course, we know who to thank. We know who to praise. We know that we have found refuge, that we have found a windfall of grace, of God's goodness, and of God's mercy. And we know who to thank. That's who he is to us. The Bible says hope is a refuge. Hope is a pursuit because the Bible says that we lay hold of this hope set before us. And people are looking for they do not know what. They don't know what. Assurance that everything is going to be okay. A mystic named Julian of Norwich, you probably have heard this saying, pictured the comfort of salvation at the end of life by saying, it was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. There's this pursuit. Is is it going to be okay? Well, the Bible says, yeah, it's going to be okay. Because God's made it okay. All things are going to be well. He's, this hope is called an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast. It's as though we were tethered to Christ and he pulls us ashore. When he, we think about Christ, this illustration, of course, will fall apart somewhere out there. But like an anchor, you think of an anchor, it's, per, it's uh, plunged into the murky depths, right? <clears throat> an anchor goes out of sight, down. Well, the, the Bible says that, uh, you know, again, I love how Bible study dovetails. In, in the Bible study today, we talked about the fact that Jesus vacated his body for a, a while. While he was in the ground and his spirit uh, went to do things when we read the Bible. Preach the gospel, it says, to those who were in prison. But it, it, like this anchor, he was plunged into the murky depths and became our security and stability and sees us safely to the harbor. And hope is described as tethering us to our forerunner. He's gone before us. You remember how Jesus put it again in John chapter 14? He says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. He's our forerunner. He's gone before us. He's ascended into heaven. And he, he has, is preparing a place for us preparing a life for us, has prepared a life for us. I heard this week on a really, it was an encouraging podcast to me, a Christian songwriter named Sarah Groves talks about having Christmas dinner with her family in Missouri and her 90-something hard-of-hearing grandfather, when he wanted to say something, would just start talking really loudly. 
And everyone would be quiet to hear this godly patriarch. Like the room would be busy. But when he started talking really loudly, she says, everyone would be quiet and listen to this godly patriarch. And he said, you know, when the house gets dark these days, I'm beset with doubt. And I wonder, how is God putting up with me? All this melancholy and all these things. And I wonder, have I been faithful? And I just have all these ghosts move out of the walls. And I struggle. He says, when I go to lie down at night for the last six months, when I close my eyes, it's not a dream, and I'm not making it up. I see the Father waiting in the driveway. And I'm walking up a hill, and I can tell by his movement, he's not angry. And I fall asleep. And Sarah Groves did what songwriters do. She turned that experience into a song. And these are the lyrics. She says, lights get low in a darkening house. Ghosts of doubt, whisper and wander. What do I really know and how? All these questions to ponder. I've lived a life of faith. I have felt and heard the spirit. Still the darkness brings It's weighed and assurance is gone. But as I fall asleep, I have a waking dream. You're standing in the driveway as I come up the street. I can tell by your movement you're not angry. You're waiting there. I love that. I love that thought. I like the reminder that we're accepted in the beloved. That God accepts us. That God receives us on the basis of what someone else has done. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't do, 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 be good, although God wants godly character in our lives. But the gospel is that Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself. That God perfected obedience in his son so that we could be forgiven. And God's posture toward us, just like the is represented in the songs. He's not angry. He's not angry. We're going to have a prayer, then a time of uh, commitment. It may be that during this time you'd like prayer or you'd like me to pray with you, and I'd be happy to do that. It may be that there's a need for you to respond in, in obedience to the gospel as you've listened today. But let's uh, go to him in prayer. God, we're grateful for what we see in your word, how your promise to us is something that we can count on no matter how we feel. We may feel bland or we may feel bored at times or we may feel guilty at times or ashamed. But God, your faithfulness to us is the same however we feel. And so we pray that we'll just keep depending on you. God, even on our dark days or good days, whatever it is, God, that we'll keep our trust completely in you and your promise to us, which is unchangeable. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.